And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. dime that we spend. I don't know that we're making anything yet, but uh, happy to have everybody here. We are live from the bunker, broadcasting to Odyssey, YouTube, and Facebook. And uh, my name is Jason Hutz. I am the editor-in-chief here at Sci-Fi For Me, firmly ensconced in the underground bunker deep beneath World Headquarters. And uh, if you are so inclined to listen to this show as a podcast instead of watching it, it is available on a number of podcast platforms. In addition to a number of video platforms, we're broadcasting to uh, various ones. I already went through that list. We're looking at maybe expanding that. Who knows? Screens, screens, and more screens are uh, are everywhere, right? And we're going to be talking about the big screen and Sony's billion-dollar baby, or I guess I should say billion-dollar spider, 11 days. So uh, Spider-Man's No Way Home has crossed the billion-dollar mark. And what does that mean for the box office? What does that mean for streaming services and uh, my guest today paul garabedian uh, de garabedian i knew i was going to get that wrong i practiced it even oh uh, you did great jason <laughs> no worries paul is the senior media analyst at comscore you've probably seen his name or at least the company name and a number of uh, write-ups and articles in the trades for those who follow that deadline variety hollywood reporter all of the big titles the big the big uh, the big trade publications go to comscore for box office analysis and paul i'd like to start with that if you want to just kind of give us yeah. a brief overview of what comscore is what they yeah. do and then we'll we'll segue into uh in, into spider-man here well, Comscore, I'm so fortunate to, to be a part of Comscore for going on about almost nine years now, because for me, it's like being a kid in a candy store. I get to go into all our uh, our data metrics and, and look at all the box office, and I can go back historically. I can look up any actor's filmography. I can look at any holiday and, you know, the box office, let's say for Christmas or or any holiday period. It's just so much fun to be able to look at all that. And what Comscore does is we are a cross-platform media measurement company. So we look at everything, uh, big screen, small screen. But of course, my heart belongs to the big screen, which is mainly, I think, what we're going to talk about today is Spider-Man's great performance. But really, if you want to have the measurement of any part of entertainment, Comscore does it. Yeah. And that's really interesting because... It's not one world, right? I mean, it is one world. It's not just one thing. So you bring together all the elements of the big screen and the small screen. It's very powerful. They're all interconnected and interrelated. As you mentioned, Jason, streaming, a big part of this, and we're going to be talking about streaming versus the big screen and all that and how that relates to Spider-Man and other movies. But it's just an honor to be here with you, Jason. And I can't wait to get into all this great data that we're going to talk. And not just data, but also the creative side of the business as well. Well, and that's and that's one thing that has continued to vex me, I guess you could say, when when you start talking about box office versus streaming numbers because the right. streaming the streaming networks don't give us any numbers. We have outfits like Samba TV for example that does yeah. audience metrics and analysis and estimates. Yeah. But there's really not you know, this is this is the kind of thing that we talk about when we talk about the comic book industry, for example, because we yeah. have we have sales to the retail level, but we don't have actual sales numbers of what customers are buying. So we really don't know how well the the comic book industry performs. 
And the same kind of thing here where, you know, Netflix, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, whoever, we yeah. never get that data. How how frustrating is that? And it's how, really how it's in- really frustrating, Jason. It, it's sort of like we're flying blind, right? We're yeah. like, well, we know what the box office has done. By the way, though, it is a different metric. It's a different calculus. Mm-hmm. So in other words, with movies, it's like one ticket, basically one person for that one movie and just add it up. I mean, I'm very much simplifying that. And with streaming, there's PVOD, SVOD, all the VODs that we bring to bear. And then if you're getting a movie, if you're receiving it at home via a subscription and it's part of a bigger subscription and you're not paying extra for that one movie or buying it a la carte, if you will, it's very difficult to parse out the different elements of that, you know, that revenue stream in the same way that you can with box office, which is very transparent, almost instantaneous. Comscore, we're the company that actually has point of sale data from every, virtually every theater on the planet. And the studios actually use Comscore data to de- determine what their box office is for each movie and for their entire year and their market share. But you're right, Jason, it's really difficult. And, you know, it wasn't always so that we were able to have box office like we do today. You go back to the 60s and 70s, there wasn't the kind of coverage for box office. It was deemed, I think, too inside baseball at that time. And so you really, other than the trades, you might see regional grosses in variety, the Hollywood Reporter. um, And really, other than that, until like the 80s, mid 80s, and of course, the 90s. I remember when Jurassic World opened the first movie in 93. That's when everyone, that's not when box office was first being reported. But that's when everybody's like, we need to talk about this on a, uh, you know, every week, uh, really every day, because it's such a big deal. Well, and and the other part of that, too, is you look at uh, how how something is performing. I know when when a lot of these studios started coming out with these day and date release plans. Yeah, it's hard really to measure. I would expect, I mean, I'm guessing from the outside, but I would guess that it's hard to measure the impact that streaming has on the box office because the studios are sitting there going, well, as long as the audience sees what we have and we can use these movies to sell our streaming Mm -hmm. service, you know, you're leaving the theaters out in the cold, AMC and, and Cinemark and all these guys are sitting there going, hey, wait a minute, what about us? Yeah. And it really feels like there's this, this paradigm shift happening that might or might not be good and then you complicate that with what's going on with the pandemic on top of everything else yeah and then you have spider-man no way home come out and cross a billion dollars in 11 days and everybody's sitting there going hang on what just happened so so what does this mean well what it means is jason never ever bet against the movie theater so when the pandemic hit march 20 of 2020 movie theaters went from the day before on the 19th in North America with close to 6,000 theaters open to basically overnight to under a hundred. I think it was 89 theaters and most of those were drive-ins. Wow. So there was a catastrophic and immediate impact on movie theaters. Suddenly drive-ins went from being, according to our comm score data, about one and a half percent of the box office to about 90, right? Virtually overnight. And the fact that uh, drive-ins did well really was the thing for me to hang my hat on Mm -hmm. that the movie theater experience, the big screen communal experience was not going to go away. But I think at that point, studios, some of them were beat up pretty bad for shifting films like Trolls World Tour to streaming immediately with with Universal. But in retrospect, they had no choice. They really didn't have a big screen to put those films on. They need to make their money back and their marketing costs and all that. I totally get that. But at the time, we didn't know this was going to last, you know, two years or more with the pandemic. So it's very interesting. But going back to your original point, it does make it very difficult to determine how well a film is doing uh, on the small screen versus the big screen. But I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you make a billion dollars with Spider-Man and that movie was a theatrical is a theatrical first release that the metrics that apply to video or to small screen, I should say, are different than the big screen because we don't know if people watch the whole movie, if they bought it one time, 
if they bought it as part of a subscription and it's included, or if it's a Disney Plus with a $30 upcharge. And interestingly, when Black Widow came out, Disney did put out some numbers for some streaming numbers for Disney Plus for Black Widow. Yeah. And they gave like a number that represented the worldwide, I don't know if it was viewership, number of people that looked at Black Widow. I don't know what it was. It was kind of weird to see that. But you're not seeing much of that because it's a, it's apples and oranges for sure to compare the two. Well, and I think too, in the wake of the of the lawsuit that Scarlett Johansson brought against uh, against yep. Disney, and some people have speculated that that was strategic on the part of Bob Chapek. That might have been some kind of a plan. I I don't know. <laughs> wow. I, I'm not a I'm not into the into the latest conspiracy on top of every other conspiracy, but. Yeah. When when you have that kind of thing where now it's in the trades, it's in the media that there's a real financial impact yeah. on the creative side that is determined, you know, that that takes a hit when they change their distribution model. Yeah. And think about this, Jason. Think of the attorneys that are going to have to figure this out in contract law. Yeah. That's what happens when technology changes. Often the law takes a while to catch up. Because issues that were not even an issue before the pandemic and with the immediate acceleration of streaming services to to come to the forefront, all these legal dynamics, it, it was just, you know, kind of shocking to take it all in. And I totally get what Scarlett Johansson was talking about. I get Disney. So I'm not going to get into the legalese of that. Sure, I know sure. I don't need that kind of thing <laughs> on my shoulders. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is. This has happened throughout history where the case law takes a while to catch up with the technology or the changes in the dynamics of the marketplace. And so it's really interesting to see how that's going to be dealt with from here and, and going forward that the Scarlett Johansson case can be looked at very carefully or that legal action, because it does speak to a new world that we're living in where the dynamics of getting paid, what constitutes royalties or a percentage of box office what does that mean in today's world it's well, very interesting you you already have a little bit of that playing out with the writers guild and you know this this notion that yeah. you know they're coming out and they're saying okay it's been long enough web and online is just as much work as <laughs> writing a, a theatrical or a tv show or whatever and, you know, in, instead of it being alternative media or, or new media, I think is the category right. they had, it needs to just be writing and, and the same as everything else because the, it, it affects pay scale, yeah. it affects royalties and all of that like you're talking about. Yeah, it's all encompassing in that way. It's sort of interesting. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, when radio was the only game in town, then television came in. Well, then they had to say, well, wait, are the writers for radio, if their works are transferred to the television medium, should they get paid for that? But we don't know how to deal with that because we didn't have television. Let's say you're in the 50s. We didn't have or the late 50s. We didn't have that 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's and the same is with music as well. Having, you know, vinyl albums for so long and then radio. But then all of a sudden you have digital and, you know, MP3s and, you know, all the various ways to get music. It's really changed things, which shows how technology often accelerated by outside forces in the case of the pandemic, which brought streaming really to the forefront, uh, how that can affect the way we interpret, look at all these um, laws and how people get paid for what they're doing, the creatives. So, now, were you a Napster guy, yeah. Paul? Uh, I, well, no, I, I'm a music guy. I'm a vinyl guy. I'm old enough to where when Napster came out, I'm like... No, I'm just going to keep playing my vinyl albums. <laughs> but I am a huge proponent of all music, whether you get it digitally and legally or uh, by putting a, a needle down on a vinyl album, which is very analog and reminds me of the movie theater. Yep. Like to be going to a movie theater and seeing a movie on a big screen, you have to be more proactive. That's what I like when you have to like go a little that extra mile, go beyond the couch and hitting a button to actually go to a theater, sort of like me having to get up and flip an album over midway. I'm so. I'm a vinyl guy myself. I have I have an appreciation for that medium as well because yeah. it's, when I was I think I got my first record player when I was three, 
So mm-hmm. yeah, I've 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 been in vinyl like for a while. So, but it, but it does that does make me think though because you know like you're talking about you know, movies, television is going to kill movies and streaming is going to kill movies. Now now it's almost like we're we're come full circle, yeah. and people are having that same worry. Only this time, it really does feel like the day and date and the and the streaming has hurt box office a little bit but it's kind of hard to separate out what the pandemic has done versus what streaming channels has done that's really a good point jason because it's hard to know although i would say if let's look at dune for a moment so dune was a movie where it was available on hbo max and it's denny villeneuve and the cinematography is amazing and even if you don't understand the movie or if you hadn't read the book (laughs) or the books (laughs) then if you go into a movie theater, you just sit there and let that imagery wash over you and it, it sort of bakes into your soul in a way that's really profound. But at home, it's not the same thing. And that movie opened with about 41 million in North America while available on HBO Max. And that's what I love about, I'm sure your audience is, is are, are passionate. They are passionate about movies. And so I don't know that it's like, if you're given the choice, then you're automatically gonna go to the small screen what I guess what I'm trying to say is if the if the content, if the movie is so great, then I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to see it at home or in a theater. And if I choose to see Dune in a theater, that's a great choice. And the fact the movie did that much says that the audience really want to see it in a theater. Yeah. But I still believe in theatrical first. Uh, I still think that's the best way to release a film. And by the way, the 90 day window that doesn't have to remain and it's not going to, I think 45 days between the time when a film is released in theaters and, and when it's available at home, 45 days, I think is a good number, but you know what? Let's make it on a case by case basis. If you have Spider-Man out there right now, why would you do 45 days? That film for all we know, what if it hits $2 billion globally, if they leave the movie out there, not leave it, but just keep it out there in theaters until it can achieve those levels rather than in 45 days moving it to streaming. Now, of course, they'll be, that movie will be huge on streaming, <laughs> bring in tons of revenue. Um, but I would say there's other movies that if they're played out after a couple of weeks, doesn't do theaters any good to have them in the theater, not in on those screens, not filling seats. So I think it's no longer a set it and forget it for these movies. I when when we were in the beginning stages of pandemic, I had posited the theory that this was a good opportunity for studios to maybe pivot away from the giant two hundred million dollar blockbusters and start making maybe those forty and fifty million dollar pictures again because you know yeah. instead of spending two hundred on one, now you can spend two hundred on five. And kind of spread things out. And, you know, the theaters would be a good place for some of that. But it seems like they're kind of doing that, only it's going into the streaming stuff. There's, I don't I don't remember which, uh, which network it was that was talking about, we're going to have a new title every week. I was like, okay, <laughs> why? Right. Why would you do that to yourself? Yes, I get it that you want to have a variety, you want to have new new content. And I really right. hate that word, but yeah, I but do too. It's but yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's this attitude of the churn, the the constant turnover because we know it's not going to last, so we got to give you something new, and it almost leads into that paralysis of choice. We've got so many things in the streaming services now to watch, TV shows and limited series and movies and miniseries and all these other things, documentaries and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know what to choose first, so I'm not going to choose it, anything. I'm going to pull a DVD off the screen, off the shelf, and just it, watch what I've got. You, you make the key point because it's so overwhelming. What you say, paralysis of choices? That what yeah. you said? Yeah, that's that's perfectly said. I think too, it's why movie theater movies seem more like prestigious or exclusive or whatever because it's weird. It's almost like the movie theater is now like this bespoke, curated. Uh, boutique experience because there's a finite number of movies released every year. A person can only go to the movie theater. I mean, you, you could go to it every day, but I mean, what I'm saying is it's a different kind of experience than streaming where the ecosystem is so huge. 
you're in an ocean, a sea of entertainment where it is overwhelming and things can get lost. You know, there was a a lot of talk about Red Notice, the movie and how it kind of it did really well. But in the zeitgeist, it kind of came and went because it's just another channel on your, you know, on your Netflix or just I mean, another uh, movie on your Netflix. Whereas a movie theater movie like Spider-Man, let's put it this way. If Spider-Man had been released just at home or released at home first or simultaneous to theatrical, I don't think we'd be talking about billion dollar box office. No, there wouldn't be countless articles written about it. It wouldn't have seeped into the culture the way it did. And I remember when uh, Crazy Rich Asians opened, the filmmakers said, we got a big offer to go on the small screen, but we wanted the biggest stakes on the biggest stage. That was the quote from the director, I believe. And that's what they got. And had that movie been released just on Netflix, let's say, I don't think it would have become the phenomenon that it did. Not to denigrate small screen content. If you look at Game of Thrones and other, you know, going back to The Sopranos, uh, all these great pieces of content that are available on the small screen, those that were intended and written as long form for the small screen or even as theatrical, well, not theatrical, but, you know, narrative traditional movies for the small screen. It's a different dynamic. It's a different perception by a consumer, which I hate to use consumer or content. I like to say fans and movies, but it really is true. And I think for this movie, for Spider-Man, this is, we're all talking about this because it what it is in a movie theater and it's a global phenomenon just something about that movie theater that brings a lot of gravitas to it a lot and, of cultural uh you know heft well to it. and and speaking of gravitas i mean you've got you know toby Maguire and and andrew garfield coming back as spider-man no spoilers and no, well, <laughs> i mean this is one of those we things know that. like well you know we've known this was going to happen yeah and that's got to be uh, that's got to factor into this as well. I mean, if they hundred percent, but the other the other yeah. part of that, you know, you talk about the long form stuff and and we get into kind of the British model where you've got six hours or eight hours or ten hours of, of yeah. material. And OK, fine. You can you can do that on a streaming service. But then you've also got something like Sony who, who they don't have a streaming service. You know, that's so how right. much of that is is part of this? Where like, I think that's well, actually a good thing, Jason, yeah. because if you don't have the I mean, look, I, I suppose and I don't know the dynamics of this. They could have made a deal with Apple to say, hey, we're going to have Spider-Man you, and you could rent it or buy it for 50 bucks or something. I, I don't know. I'm just making that up. But sometimes it's good not to have the option to have your own streaming channel because it then forces the theatrical first release. And that has been so beneficial to Spider-Man and for the theatrical industry writ large. I mean, it's definitely been something for the industry to say, look, people want to go back to the movie theater. I think the bigger, not issue, but a, but a debate may be, well, if it's only movies like Spider-Man that do well, then will the only films that studios get behind to put in theaters be the, the Batman movies like the Batman the new Jurassic movie, uh, the you know the bigger franchise films, and what will happen to independent film? Yeah, will those just go away? And we don't want to see that at all. But for right now, theaters have to have to weather this storm. And thank goodness for Spider Man because otherwise, if we had wound up the year under four billion in North America, we'll wind up at four point four billion uh, because of Spider Man in large part. It would have been a really bad lack of momentum heading into 22. So this movie, Spider-Man No Way Home, is important, not only financially to the industry, but uh, just emotionally for the industry and for theaters. But not every movie is going to do this kind of business. And we could talk about West Side Story and some of the other movies that have appealed to perhaps more mature viewers that haven't done well. Um, But yeah, it's it's a really important movie. Maybe the most important box office achievement since the first Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire was the first movie to ever open with over a hundred million dollars in North America. Well, now you mentioned, uh, you mentioned West Side Story and the fact that it didn't do well in the box office. And there were certain comments that Spielberg had made about subtitles and, and there were, you know, there were, there was noise being made about the casting and ethnicity and all these other, you know, the representation thing. 
Yeah, yeah. Do we run into because you look at something like a Spider-Man or a, you know Batman or Ghostbusters Afterlife, for example? Yeah. Where and and you can actually you know, the direct comparison has been made a number of places between Ghostbusters Afterlife and Ghostbusters 2016. Answer the call. Mm-hmm. How it was made, how it was marketed, what kind of story it was it was telling, and there's a lot of people that are sitting there saying, well, one of the reasons why Spider-Man is doing so well is because it's not pandering to a particular identity group. It's not playing politics with the superhero. It's just telling us a superhero story. It's giving us a Spider-Man movie with three Spider-Mans. Ghost, yeah. Ghostbusters Afterlife. We're not making a big feminist manifesto movie here. It's this is about family and it's about it's about the Ghostbusters and about what it means to be a Ghostbuster. Right. And the story comes first over whatever message you want to bake into it. And yeah. I think people are responding to that, too, maybe. Oh, absolutely. When movies are are organically great and not sort of uh, check the boxes, we need to do this, this, and this to create something that, I don't know, is uh, like makes sense culturally or whatever. I think all that is great. I love diversity in film. I think we should aspire for all that and do all that. But it has to be baked in early in the DNA of the project. Once that happens, I think people don't mind it. But when it when things feel like contrived or heavy-handed or a money grab, or the movie just isn't good, then all that stuff goes out the window, yeah. right? And Spider-Man's just, and by the way, there are people who could find issues with every movie. Sure. They could say something about Spider-Man or any movie about whatever you want to say. And I'm not, I don't ever get political or any of that, but I'm just saying like. <laughs> You can find fault with any movie because we come to every movie, guess what? With our own emotional baggage, what we grew up with, what what our perception of the world is. And Spider-Man is just a flat out great movie. I mean, it's it just bar none. It's kind of corny. It's fun. It has everything. And I really can't find any fault with it other than maybe I want to go on a little longer. It's just a great movie. Other films that haven't done well, the reason they don't do well often is if the movie isn't there, it just doesn't get the buzz going. That's the downside or the actually it's a good thing about the movie theater experience is a movie will be uh, successful once it's in theaters, irrespective of the marketing quality, of the marketing or the release date. If it catches on and people love it and they're talking about it, yeah. if that doesn't happen, it's just the marketplace speaking. And that's the scary part about dropping the movie into movie theaters with a worldwide marketing push with all that money. Cause you just, sometimes you don't know, you, you just never know. And James Bond actually has turned out to be a big hit. But at first I'm like, wow, I thought that would be the hundred million dollar opener. We were all waiting for it. Didn't happen. But now that movie is earned, has earned a lot of money. And sometimes we have to be more patient, Jason, just let these movies play. Yeah. Now with Spider-Man, we didn't have to be patient. <laughs> Hit a billion dollars in 11 or 12, I think it wound up being 12 days to a billion. But I mean, that's a sprint even in pre-pandemic times. But yeah, I, I digress. But no, no, I just no, think we- that the, the quality of the movie uh, will always win. But also there has to be that great word of mouth and quality is subjective. Yeah. Um, but clearly people are gravitating towards Spider-Man also, there's pent up demand. And if you haven't been to a movie theater, anybody listening, go out and see Spider-Man. <laughs> you could take the whole family. Grandma like and I don't have any money invested in this movie, but it's just the kind of movie everyone can enjoy. And it's just so much fun. Don't you wish you did, though? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'll just, just take a half, nope. a half a point off the back end. That's fine. That's another By the way, we got to give a shout out to the cast and Tom Holland just perfectly cast yeah. as Spider-Man. And uh, it was just great to see in the theater I was in, people were applauding when the other Spider-Men, Spider-Mans, gave me, <laughs> however you want to say it, when they came on the screen. Yeah. And Zendaya, Zendaya is great. The whole cast is fantastic. Jason is great. All of them are, are great in the movie. And uh, I just, I loved it, but it's just going to keep playing and playing, I think. But we have big movies next year. Oh, real quick though, Jason, yeah. I want to mention Free Guy. Um, Free Guy was a movie that opened with just under 30 million at the time when the Delta variant was really talked up in the news. 
And that film was only available in the movie theater. And guess what? It performed so well and just kept pl- the long-term playability of that movie. And let's mm-hmm. not forget Ryan Reynolds is a marketing machine and was <laughs> everywhere. So that's a big part of this too. The cast engagement yeah. is really yeah. important. Social media is helping to drive Spider-Man as well. It's not just one thing. It's a, it's, it's a bunch of puzzle pieces coming together. Well, now let me ask you, because you mentioned the media and, and how it was playing out with, with Delta and Variant and Variant and Variant. Yeah. Does it sometimes feel like, and I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here. And, yeah, and it, yeah. But sometimes it feels like the media, just in general, is selling us fear and paranoia, and that's impacting our willingness to go to the movie theaters. We, we, I don't even want to get out right now because you got a mask, you got to get your booster, you got your fourth booster, you right, got to get right. 12 masks and you got to do this and that and the other. It's, it's, there's this big rigmarole that's that's yeah. predicated on being afraid. But you know what? It hasn't affected the more youthful moviegoers. I mean, that's what we're seeing is that I and the you know, I actually feel that the number one uh compelling uh, reason that people go to see a movie or what their motivations are have nothing to do with the pandemic. Yeah. I see the trailer. I'm like, I get excited. I'm put my mask on, be in charge of my health. Movie theater has been great about keeping their patrons safe and healthy and secure, at least safe and secure. Um, the, all the other stuff I think kind of goes out the window for true passionate movie fans who know, who have been going out to restaurants as well you just just be safe. Where your look, Spider Man wears a mask. You can wear a mask too. <laughs> Go to the movie theater. But I think for more mature viewers, and again, I don't like to stereotype people because, you know, Licorice Pizza and the French Dispatch did really well. Limited release. I would argue those appeal to a more mature audience. But adult dramas aimed at people, let's say over fifty, are having a tough time because that audience, I think, is true truly more reticent to go out to theaters, at least right now, that'll change over time. Whereas younger viewers seem to be like, I'm going to see Spider-Man. I'm, I'm, you know, no matter what, come hell or high water. No. Well, and it's those older viewers uh, that I want to talk about when we get back because the Matrix Resurrections is not doing as well. And I have a couple of theories about that, but I want to, I want to get your take <laughs> on that real quick. We are uh, talking to Paul DeGar... No, I know I'm going to get this. You got this. it. You had it. You Degar- had it. Degar- of ComScore, and we will continue the conversation <laughs> right after this. Stay tuned. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. I just can't imagine you reading racy adult material. But you know what? You know what? I have a, there's an author that I'm a big fan of, uh, and he writes a science fiction series, and he writes a fantasy series, and he writes a smutty series. And the smutty series is really entertaining. The H2O Podcast, Monday night at 8, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. A little funk in the trunk, I guess we could say, right? Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here, along with Paul DeGarabedian. I think I got it. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) He is the senior uh, media analyst at Comscore, which is uh, a company that looks at numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers and crunch numbers. Yeah, now, lots and lots of them. Besides, uh, besides box office, what other kind of metrics do you take into account when you're looking at analysis of how a particular media property performs? Yeah. So at Comscore, we're looking at uh, you know all the over the top. Uh, you know, streaming services. We're looking at the digital space as well. So everything's tied together. We have something called Movies Everywhere at Comscore. And that's looking at how a movie does on the small screen, on the big screen. Everywhere you have a movie, Comscore is there (laughs) to to, uh, measure those, uh, you know, whether it be the box office or the number of views when we have those available. It's just a very interesting time to be tracking box office, but also the small screen. 
And over time, I think we're going to get more information on the small screen and what each movie is, you know, how they're performing, how many views and that kind of thing. But we're kind of in the early stages of that as an industry. And so the measurement of that is really important, but they all link together uh, because people who are watching content at home love to go to movies. They're listening to music, playing video games. It really is a multiverse of, uh, you know, activity and platforms that give people so much joy through all this great entertainment. Um, joy. Funny you should mention that. Um, because, <laughs> you know, you have you know, people like... Um, um, I just went blank on his name. Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Christopher Nolan. Oh, yeah. Upset about the whole day and date thing. Uh, moving over to Universal. You've got filmmakers who have decided definite opinions about things and how things should be and then you have the ones who you you have no idea what what they're going to do right and you get a movie like the matrix resurrections for example yeah which has a scene in it i don't know if you've seen it yet i don't yes. wanna, okay you see i think it. i know what you're gonna say but yeah keep going the, the scene where uh partner is sitting there saying well warner brothers wants a sequel and they're going to do it whether we're involved or not. And a lot of so people, meta, right? It's it was most, it's the a... entire thing is. <laughs> but it has people wondering, okay, well, yes, Lana Wachowski had this idea processing the grief over over the parents' death and all of that. Right. But how much is that? Warner Brothers coming in saying we're going to make one whether you're involved or not and how much is Lana coming in saying hey I got this idea I want to go back to the Matrix I don't know I and, and to be honest uh, but when I when I was watching the movie and I love to put the subtitles on mm. oh yeah <laughs> because I love to read the script and often the sound mix I'm sorry at least on my TV it's probably me not the sound mixer Sometimes I can't hear the dialogue or maybe I'm just getting old, Jason. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, I like to watch the the subtitles. And when that came up with the, I go, wait, did I just hear that? Mm -hmm. It was so like, it was so fourth wall breaking almost in a way. Cause they're, it's almost like they're talking about the dynamic with the studio yeah, and then veiling it within the context of this video game world or whatever. It's so complicated anyway, but that was pretty interesting. But no matter, I, I think that the fact that the movie got made, no matter what is a good thing, I think West Side Story being made is a really good thing. There's a lot of movies, you know, I do box office. Guess what? I don't think box office should be the measure of quality of a movie. Some of the greatest movies of all time did not do well at the box office. Some of the greatest TV shows would have been canceled in today's world yeah. that were allowed to play out and do well over time. So I'm glad, I'm really glad that Spielberg made West Side Story. I want these movies to be made. And of course, I'm not bankrolling them, so I have no monetary interest in their profit or loss. But look at Blade Runner 2049. Stands is one of my favorite top, top 10 movies ever. I love that movie. Uh, Blade, the original one's a little higher up on my list, but what I'm saying is so glad they made that movie. Mm. And for the emphasis to always be on, and maybe I'm part of this because... I report these numbers and it is a business, but I just actually like that they made this Matrix movie. And the fact that it was greenlit with some allusions to, or, you know, to Warner Brothers wanting a sequel within the script, within the movie, I think that's cool. And that's why we're talking about it. I, I've seen a number of people uh, react negatively to that particular film and they're saying, oh, it's, it's really bad. There's not a whole lot that happens. It's a retread of the first film. And then people are picking up on something that I picked up on. Because when I walked out of there, I, I, I looked at my wife and I said, did, did we just see an indictment of everything that Hollywood is doing right now? Because, <laughs> you know, sequels, reboots, because now you've, you've essentially got a reboot of Morpheus. You've got a reboot of, of Smith. You have a sequel that nobody was asking for. But the studio decides that they're going to do it anyway. It's all all of this meta stuff, plus the the bots yeah. and and this idea of people who want to be in that 
non-reality. Don't give me what's going on in the real world. I'm just going to stay here in my yeah. social media bubble. And, and all this. there was so much commentary in that subtext. That's great, right? I mean, if a movie is thought-provoking and it's not what you thought it would be, yet some people may accuse it of being a either a money grab or just a too meta for its own good or too, like, I don't know, precious or whatever... Well, you know what? That's good because we should be talking about it because the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. It's indifference. So if you if you absolutely hate a movie, I say the filmmaker. Abs- and I'm not saying you hated Matrix. No, I didn't. I actually hate a movie, like- yeah, I actually liked it. But I, I, at first, I it might deserve a couple more viewings to really get it on Matrix Resurrections. But, you know, the filmmaker has done their job if you hate a movie. Now, if you love it, that's probably a little better. But, you know. <laughs> It's just, and I have a lot of filmmakers in, in my family and cinematographers, and I'm lucky uh, to be surrounded by creatives who actually make movies. I don't, uh, obviously, uh, but I, I certainly appreciate them. And I love the fact that people like you, like me, like all the people out there who now have a voice via social media, for better or worse, can explore their passion for movies and really talk about these things and get an audience without being a professional critic or an analyst or a journalist. It's that's the really good part of this. As long as it stays like civil and cool and we're all like, you know, friendly and and we all love the same thing. We're just passionate. To me, that's freaking awesome. Friendly and cool is not fun. And that doesn't give you the, that doesn't give you the social media clout. Well, it could be spirited (laughs) and, uh, um, abrasive maybe is yeah there you go well and it's funny you mentioned you know if you hate a movie that's a response you know your success as a filmmaker i think ryan johnson would agree with you on that because (laughs) i've seen a number of people comparing matrix resurrections with the last jedi and after watching it and after having discussions with other people we've come to the conclusion that it's more along the lines of the force awakens than it is the last jedi and i have to wonder if the Last Jedi comparison is out there on purpose to deliberately provoke a negative reaction. Oh, it's going to be woke. It's going to be political. It's going to be all about trans identity and stuff and all that. And you see 65% critic score, 63% audience score over Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. It's not making a lot of money. There's a lot of the bad word of mouth. But like you said, people who are seeing it more than once are starting to get it. They're starting to understand and appreciate more of what this film is actually doing. Whereas, you know, you're right. I mean, look at people, a lot of people hated 2001, a space odyssey when it came out and I was seven, I think when it came out. So I really, (laughs) I loved it, but I didn't know what I was watching, but sometimes movie, and I'm not comparing matrix to two. I mean, 2001 stands in the pantheon. That's a whole different thing. But what I'm saying is often movies are not, uh, really appreciated in their time. And often with films, filmmakers or artists, if you look at Frank Lloyd Wright, for example, he did the Prairie style homes, then he adapted to be like Bauhaus, and then he went back to more of a, the other style. Like often you start not parodying yourself, but either the genre or the medium starts imploding on itself and recreating itself, often with that kind of meta mentality, trying right. to like, turn the, the 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 medium on its ear and often when people see that it it's disturbing it's like when musical artists completely change how they do things or their sound at first people as much as we want originality we don't like it when things are changed up too much we meaning the royal we yeah. don't always like it when things are changed up and then over time we may come to appreciate those things but you know that may be I may be overstating some of that. No, I think you're right. I I think that, you know, I mean, you look at something like Buckaroo Banzai, for example, which did not do very great in in the box office, becomes a cult classic. You know, The Last Starfighter is another example of that. Night of the Comet, another one. I know I'm in genre, but that's what we do here. And you have all of these films that, you know, Flash Gordon. You know, and and now we're getting a new Flash Gordon from Taika Waititi. And... You know, when we heard about Ghostbusters Afterlife coming, it was a complete surprise. Everybody went, well, wait, what? You know, we're, <laughs> we're getting another Ghostbusters and it's Ivan Reitman's kid who's doing it. OK, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm interested. Tell me more. 
and then it comes out and and i remember talking about it before it was before it opened and all of the different things you know talking about the buzz and my whole thing was please don't screw it up please don't screw it up please don't screw it up and you hear that the matrix is coming because you know we've got terminator dark fate we've got star trek discovery we've got all of these things that are a mixed bag in terms of the audience reception and you have to wonder because you know in the case of marvel the audience reception to phase four has not been you know over the top enthusiastic just because it's a marvel movie doesn't mean it's going to do gangbusters i mean that was the case when guardians of the galaxy came out yes you know nobody knew who they were but it was a marvel movie so i'm going to go see it and now you know black widow has its issues with day and date eternals uh, Shang-Chi, all of these are not performing as well as the first three phases. But maybe maybe they brought this on themselves. I mean, the, the studios and the filmmakers have put themselves under the gun to produce so much entertainment so consistently and at a certain clip that I don't know how you keep that momentum going or keep the quality where it needs to be. I mean, they've done a really good job with it with Marvel, certainly uh, Pixar, and some of the other big franchises have done an amazing job. If you think of what they what they've done, what they've accomplished, but there is a momentum thing, right? If you you can have one or two kind of falter in a row, mm-hmm. you can come right back with a great movie and a big movie, but you can't go on like that too long. So I think it's really about keeping the quality, but also rehashing things is a double edged sword. I mean, the new Dexter, uh, the rebooted Dexter, which I personally like, but man, you talk to people. It's a love or hate thing with that. And it it sort of reminds me of Cobra Kai. It's like Dexter in a Cobra Kai universe with the teens and the, you know, at the high school and and all that. But if, if I'm even entertained enough to hate it and I actually don't, but if, if I keep, here's what I'll say to everyone listening. If you hate something and you keep watching it, I think you like it. You just don't want to admit it or you're entertained on well, some level. And Cobra Kai is another example of that where people are sitting there going, they got it right. They understand what what makes the fans like this property. And, you know, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog is another one of those things. They didn't yeah. like the design. They went back and they redesigned it because they're thinking about the fans. And to your point earlier, you were talking about consumers versus fans. I always, I always have in the back of my head what Harrison Ford said one time in an interview. He says, I don't, I don't think of them as fans. They're customers. And I think <laughs> not enough of the Hollywood machine thinks that way. And mm-hmm. may, may, maybe you got this as well in the comics industry, for example, where you have, you know, you're entitled to be my fan. You know, you, sh- you should feel you should feel grateful that you get to be my fan. I think there's a certain <laughs> amount of that. But also this idea that, you know, there's a there's a two-tiered class envy type of thing going on. We make these movies. We're special. And right. you're the customer. The customer pays the freight to make sure that you can keep making those films. And and it's I think something's lost there and, and has been for a few years. Well, you know, that's, a, that's very interesting because I think in this whole streaming versus big screen debate, the most powerful I've said before people in Hollywood are the consumer or the fan. I keep saying consumer, but I mean the fans because they are determining the fate of these movies. If people, if Dune had made 5 million in theaters, it's opening weekend instead of 40 or 41, then that would have said, look, we're the fans. We don't want it. We don't need it in theater. Right. Or if Spider-Man had opened with like what, what Sony had originally estimated, which was 130 million in that opening weekend, it doubled that. But let's say it had done on the low end, movie wasn't very good and it just faltered over time. Well, that that's the audience telling you if what you're doing is working. Now, all the marketing in the world can bring out people in that opening weekend, but the fact that this movie is still continuing to do well, uh, that says a lot, that speaks volumes. And by the way, just to give West Side Story a quick little shout out, it had a very small drop over Christmas weekend now, it started out pretty low. I'm not saying it started high, but I think there were people who went, hey, or said to themselves, we're going to go to the movie theater with the family over Christmas. Let's go see West Side Story. And they may have done that. It kind of looks like that in the numbers. But 
again, let's get real. I mean, a, a, a remake or reboot or really a remake of a film that came out, you know, half a century ago and for which the IP, I don't know if it resonates as much with younger audiences, but it is Spielberg. But where do we make the calculus that that's a movie that should have opened with $50 million or made $100 million? Now, what I think is going to happen with studios going forward is they're going to have to be realistic about the calculus, about what those types of movies can make and not spend $100 million on them. You know, this is coming down to profit and loss or ROI, return on investment. Yeah. And that's where I think the studios beyond even just what's the best release date, what's the marketing plan, you know, do we go streaming or not? Well, how do we release this movie? It's going to be like, what is the profitability? Because as much as I hate to make this into dollars and cents, if you want to keep getting great content, there has to be some profit being made and you want filmmakers and creatives to be profitable or to make their part of that pie. So they keep being incentivized to make great content for all of us. So, well, and I think the other factor in that one one element that I don't hear talked about a lot is social media and and the use of the quote unquote influencers, because I remember seeing over the last couple of different premieres for Marvel films, especially, but Spider-Man in particular, there were a lot of people who have Instagrams and TikTok accounts. They're cosplayers. They've got this real big following of of hundreds of thousands of people or a couple million people following them on on instagram or tiktok and they get invited to the premiere i mean who who are you you have an instagram account i i i'm 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 isn't that funny it used to be if you were in the top reviewers at a major newspaper back in the day you got invited yeah but to think that but maybe that's cool maybe that's great like if if you have built that big of a, you know, the term influencer is thrown around a lot, but if you have a million followers or whatever, maybe, I mean, I think it's, it's just like when uh, Comic-Con, when they would start, when the early days of Comic-Con, when the studio is like, oh, what's Comic-Con? We don't need to be there. And like, oh crap, we're really missing out on a good bet. Yeah. If we're not there to show support for those key fans who at that time may have been small in numbers represented at Comic-Con, had tremendous influence around the world, even before the proliferation and the expansion of social media. So now they've jumped all over that. And again, I always say for better or worse, because I think there's always good and bad (laughs) to that kind of thing. Oh yeah. But if you you do the work, if you put in the, the time and you get enough people interested in what you're doing, they get that kind of following, hey man, you're an influencer. That's it. Full stop. I I have told the uh, I've told the staff here that I am waiting for us. We're probably going to be a 15 year overnight success. Uh, this this coming year is 13, so it might wow. happen now. But that's great. You know, it's it's one of those things that you know I'm sitting there going, okay, I'm I'm I don't know that I want to be an influencer so much, but you know we 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 do okay here, and it'd be nice to yeah. have a few a few more hundred thousand people to see it. But, you know, then you then you fall into that trap of, well, they're just a show. You know, you get the Grace Randolphs and the John Campias and, and the people and and now you're in the studio's pocket. And I'm not going to trust what you say because you've been you know bought. What though, Jason, like we talked about earlier, I think when something is organic and authentic, people know it. So yeah. let's say you you make a movie and it happens to check all these boxes that people are looking for today but you did it organically and that's your storytelling and it's really sincere. People can smell that a mile away. And I think that's true with various influencers and people on social media. I think you can all, we can all tell when something is contrived or purchased, or again, just trying to check some boxes to achieve some level. And there's a lot of great YouTube uh, channels and, and people, I don't even want to call them influencers. They're, they're experts in their field, whether it be music or movies uh, you know, whatever video gaming, whatever it is, and you automatically gravitate towards that content and you know, when it's fake and then you'll turn, then guess what? You have the right to turn it off or as we say, change the channel. But today you, you could just (laughs) flip a switch and go somewhere else, but it is really interesting. It's a completely different dynamic, but I, I think with movies, it's the same thing. It's about authenticity, uh, and court, this organic level of creation where when you watch the movie, you just 
like feel something that you know uh, was, cre- you know, when you feel that uh, in your heart, that what you're watching was created from a really pure place. But everybody's different. I might, one person's, you know, interpretation of this movie is great is different to somebody else. It's just like art. You go to an art museum, everyone's going to have a different opinion on, and there is no best. There's just whatever you like, what you happen to like or gravitate toward. And um, along those lines, because you talk about this kind of thing, uh, I want to I want to make sure that we put in a plug here for your podcast. Mini oh, screens, you. big picture trailer. Uh, uh, no, mini screen, mini screens, big picture. Yeah, um, it's I guess we have an audio trailer up there. But yeah, Jason, I have this. I've been doing this for about a year and a half. Went on a little bit of a hiatus for towards the end of the year. We're relaunching in January. And I like to have a wide assortment of guests. I've had a lot of filmmakers on, studio executives, photographers, filmmakers. I mean, you you name it. I've had, uh, I, I look at it as, uh, and I say this with all humility, it's my version of the Algonquin Roundtable. Oh, okay. So you, put it, you give me an architect, a photographer, a filmmaker, uh, you know, a, a painter, whoever it is, if they have an opinion about something creative, I want them on my podcast. Up and so coming influencers, maybe? Maybe. Maybe if they're real and organic, Jason, they're real yeah. and authentic. Uh, Paul also is on Twitter. And are yeah. you on any of the other social media things? Where oh, can I'm on LinkedIn, find Jason. That's my, that's my new. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew LinkedIn was such a big deal, but it kind of is. And I'm not looking for a job, but uh, I'm on there. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I do Instagram a little bit. I do Instagram. I sound like I'm 80, but I have an Instagram account. But really, it's it's Twitter, Facebook, but mainly Twitter and LinkedIn yeah. are the yeah. two places. And yeah, my many screens, big picture podcast for ComScore. It's a blast. I'm learning from you right now how to do better because I think you've done an amazing job here. Thank you. And I really appreciate you having me on your show. Well, now I like me- being in Okay. Let me ask you this, because, you know, the the social media things, ha, has there been discussion at Comscore about looking at the impact? Uh, and I don't even know if you guys deal with this kind of thing, but besides Twitter and Instagram and stuff, you've got these other social media things that are coming up. Gab, Parlor, Locals, um, MeWe, Minds, all of these different things. Yeah. Do those factor into any analysis uh, uh, yet? I, I think they will, because I think you have to achieve a certain level of scale sure. for anything like that to have a statistical impact or an empirical impact on what you're studying. So but remember, Twitter was not Twitter when it first started, like <laughs> Facebook. And, you know, the, these platforms take a, quite a while to get up and running and, and become influencers themselves, yeah. if you will. So certainly that's all really important. That's a big part of the future of measurement. Uh, it's not just TV ratings and box office. It's now a whole myriad of uh, objects out there in the, in the virtual verse and the real verse uh, that is there to track and analyze and look at. But the most fun is just talking about movies and the content and the creative part of that. But it all relates back to how many people are watching, why they're watching, who's watching, yeah. all of that. Well, we will definitely have to continue this conversation about who's watching and what they're watching as things uh, as things go into 2022. We look forward to having you back, Paul. What now? Are you guys regularly? How how does the analysis thing work? This is a constant yeah. churn for you for all it of is. you. Or? It is so every really every the weekends are the big things. So the weekend box office every Sunday morning. I'm up early. I've been doing the Sunday box office for almost 30 years. I've only not done it twice in 30 years. That's either sad or really impressive. I don't know which, uh, but I'm constantly talking with press folks, uh, with industry people, analysts, fellow analysts, everybody. It's what I do every day. I never take any time off because I love it. You know, it's not a job if you love what you do, but it's a, it's really a constant thing. Um, other than when the pandemic hit in March and closed the theaters, there's a pretty fallow period there where yeah. things are pretty quiet. There wasn't a lot to report on in terms of box office, but out of this whole pandemic situation, I think has come, you know, and it's tr- and obviously tragic in so many ways and, and heartbreaking, but there's become, there's come out of this a whole new dynamic and how we look at all this content, how it relates to all the, the, the 
you know, the technologies and how people consume and view entertainment and how they feel about it. So that's definitely changed because of the pandemic. So it's more interesting than ever to analyze and to look at and just experience as well. All right. Well, we will uh, definitely have to uh, to have you back for round two. Uh, I'll be and, back. And you name the time All and right. the day. I'll be there. Paul Degarabedian. I'm getting it. Degarabedian. All right. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it one of these days. Six months. Yeah. Give me. Give me six months. I'll All give right. you six months to learn that. All right. And uh, his his podcast, Mini Screens, Big Picture. We will put that link in the show notes. Paul, Great. Paul, thanks very much for being here, sir. Thank you, Jason. It was an honor. Have have a great one. Happy New Year and happy 2022. Uh, well, we can always hope, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we do thank all of you for being here. If you are new to the channel, we do invite you to subscribe. Have your notifications turned on. And uh, check out any of the rest of the videos that we have here. Speaking of social media channels, here's all of ours. This is our mailing address. If you've got something you want to send us to review, uh, you can also sign up for a newsletter. And uh, the return dates for our shows in January. Let me show you that here for a moment. Good Morning Multiverse back on January 8th, as well as Foreign Bodies. Salacious Crumbs back on the 9th. Live from the Bunker will continue on the 3rd, not the 10th. And uh, the H2O podcast comes back on Monday the 10th as, uh, as we will come to new discussions and new topics and whatnot. So we hope you join us for that. In the meantime, tomorrow, ma uh, Matrix discussion, and, uh, and then we go into the new year, and we will have all new stuff in 2022. We hope you stick around for that. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember a couple of things. With great power, there must also come great responsibility, and there are four lights this has been a presentation of sci-fi for me radio copyright 2021 by flaming dog media llc all rights reserved no portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of flaming dog media